Thursday afternoon. This is London Live. My name is Mike Stubbs. Moshe Lander joins us in studio. Moshe, thank you for doing this. Moshe is a lecturer at Concordia University, but lectures all over the place. You may have heard one of his lectures and is someone who can pretty much take anything in our world and give it the economic slant. And that is a talent in itself. When did you realize you had this talent? Uh, you know what? It was the only course that I did well in my first year at Huron. Uh, I was planning on going to Ivy and uh, realized that I hated all of those biz students. Uh, I didn't fit in with the GQ uh, personality type and uh, just economics clicked. And next thing you know, I'm teaching my classmates and uh, that was it. Well, if you have any economics questions or concerns, please get them to us. You can text us, 519-643-2222. We're going to talk a little bit about where London sits. We'll hit on certainly the hot-button topics of inflation and interest rates and that R-word recession. Moshe, we're not hearing the word recession as much, or at least I'm not. You read far more into economics. Are you still reading the R word? It's like Beetlejuice, right? You say it enough times and it materializes. So I think everybody's trying to avoid saying it so that we don't make it so. Um, yeah, it's still floating around out there, right? But the the issue is, do we get that technical two quarters of declining GDP? I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and so I think that recessions are really just one of those personal things. You know, you have a job, your friends have a job, your family has a job. I could tell you we're in a recession and you'd say, you, you're making that up. Um, and if you don't have a job and your friends don't have a job and your family don't have a job and I say the economy's doing well, you'd say you're making that up. So I, I think it's just one of those things that there's talk out there, but it, it really just comes down to how are you living? So do we pay more attention to that just because it shows up in headlines? And you're right, unless it's impacting you directly and you can have a bad time when everybody else seems to be having a good time and vice versa. It, is a recession that big a deal? No. Um, actually, I'm I'm going to take a, an economics position here where I'm going to say a recession is a good thing. Um, so, you know, after a, a hard weekend uh, of, of living, you maybe need a day or two to sleep it off, right? And it allows you to recharge and come back stronger, right? So the economy, after an extended period of hard living, uh, needs a little bit of time to sleep it off, right? It gets rid of some of the dead weight in the economy. Uh, and while it's unfortunate if somebody loses their job, I'm not going to say that's necessarily good for them. Uh, but, you know, there's certain zombie industries that are roaming around out there, uh, retail, uh, movies. Uh, they, they probably shouldn't be existing in their current form. So if there's an economic downturn that forces them to rethink what's their business model, that's not a bad thing. One of the things that you can do if you're going to do some hard living is mix in a water to try and minimize the effects. Are there ways for us to be mixing in water or has that been happening? Yeah, well, I mean, you talk about it enough, right? The the concern that most people would have now is if one's coming, I need to find a way to save some money or uh, maybe cut back on some of my spending or uh, for sure go to the Knights game if you can. But if if it's too much for you, then, you know, hold on and uh, there'll, there'll be good days ahead, right? The great thing with a recession is that there's always a recovery that comes after it. So, uh, you know, the way that you mix in your water and stay hydrated is you try and stay liquid, in fact, uh, both a business term and, I guess, a hydration term there, and that that's the, the way to get through it. Wow. That's, that's a great way to think of it. Moshe Lander joining us. Okay, let's hit on a couple of other hot buttons because we've watched interest rates rise because we've watched inflation rise. What goes up does come down, and it seems in terms of – economics, what goes down does come up. We just have this up and down roller coaster that we can trace through history. 
Do either one of those stand out to you right now as being a really key thing to watch, inflation or interest rates, or are they just intertwined anyway? They are intertwined. So it's something called the Fisher equation that links interest rates and inflation. Um, So, you know, what the Bank of Canada did was exactly what any textbook uh, would say to do. When inflation rises, you increase interest rates to, to choke off the demand side of the economy. And that's what it's done, right? Um, and the Bank of Canada, uh, you know, has much, much more complicated models than I would draw on a blackboard or anything like that. And uh, what it does is uh, rein in inflation. And through their modeling, they say that probably what they've done up until now is enough to bring it back to that 1% to 3% sweet spot uh, you just got to give it enough time. And so probably by the end of this year, we're going to see that inflation goes back to where it's been the last 30 years. And then we can start talking about, can we take a little bit of the you know, foot off the accelerator there and, and maybe decrease interest rates a little bit and get it maybe not to the record lows we saw 16 months ago, but to something reasonable. Why is that a sweet spot for inflation? inflation? Why do they point to 1% to 3%? So it was long thought that a little bit of inflation, man, I'm going to age myself here. Um, you need a little bit of grease for the wheel, right? So uh, too much grease and you get no traction, not enough grease and it cracks, right? So there's just a little bit to kind of keep the economy humming along there. But too much inflation, we've seen the results in the last year, right? It's not like we're talking about like um Venezuelan style hyperinflation we're just talking about it was like 8% and people were losing their minds uh at how devastating this was never mind that in Canada 30 years ago 40 years ago this was normal um so you know that the fact is that even just that little bit of inflation causes uh we would call them shoe leather costs people just start wasting away the the leather on the bottom of their shoes trying to find a deal something that's not rising as quickly um, one to three percent, then it's just enough grease to keep the you know the economy humming along, uh, but not too much that people lose their mind. Now we lived in a period of time where we had really low interest rates, and when they're really low, sometimes we think in the back of our heads, "Hey, it's going to be like this forever." Or if you're at a certain point in your life and you enter into "Here's where I'm spending," "Here's where I'm doing a lot of my buying," and everything is low, all of a sudden you're buying all this stuff. Is that maybe what we're seeing is people just bought too much, bought too quickly, and and that's the effect now that we get when things come back to where they have been many times before? Yeah, you you overstimulated the economy with what was essentially free money, right? That as much as you can borrow from the bank when you're effectively borrowing at close to 0% interest, uh, even if there's a little bit of inflation out there, which there was you know pre-COVID, uh, if you think in real terms – if your money is free and inflation is 1%, 2%, in reality, you're borrowing at a negative interest rate because the money that you have to pay back isn't worth as much as when you borrowed it. So people got really out of control uh, and took on extra properties or bigger properties they, they could afford. Uh, and banks were happy to do it as long as you know housing prices go up. Uh, they'll get their money back one way or the other. And the next thing you realize – Interest rates go from record lows to 20-year highs, and that's why we're seeing a lot of people right now having a hard time swimming uh, with with what they borrowed. Well, we'll watch to see what happens. As Moshe says, if we see that inflation drop down, then maybe we see the interest rates drop down. And in a crystal ball, it's awfully murky when it comes to anything financial-related, but... 
we could start to see things happen in the next year, in the next, what, six months? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the thing with the business cycle, right, is that, like you said, what goes up must come down and what goes down must come up. So there is a turning point out there where we're going to say that this was just a bump in the road and we can get back to some sort of normal living. I, I think that when inflation comes back to that 1% to 3% sweet spot and the Bank of Canada has a little bit of room to reduce interest rates, then I think this recession talk goes away and a, a lot of the economic fear goes away and people can get back to, to maybe a pre-COVID existence. We're talking with Moshe Lander, who is a lecturer at Concordia University, other fine institutions across the country as well. We're talking with Moshe Lander, who is a lecturer at Concordia University, Canada's preeminent sports economist. We can talk about that in a little while because we've had some sports business news this week. The province of Alberta has decided they're going to help build Calgary a new rink. Not too long ago, Edmonton built a new rink. And uh, I don't think they helped out much. We'll have to check on that. But Moshe, being... At Concordia University, have you started to bleed rouge, blanc et bleu? No, I have not, and I will not. Uh, <laughs> I, I will happily cheer for a localized earthquake anytime the Leafs play the Habs. Uh, take them, their fans, and their management to the center of the earth and swallow them whole. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon either. Uh, but you were born in London, or from London. I was, yeah, I was born in Windsor okay. and uh, moved to London when I was four. And so I'm very familiar with half the city's split between Toronto and Detroit, right? So, um, But I'm that small sliver that uh, has allegiances to Buffalo. So I'm a Bills fan. I'm a Sabres fan. I was a, a Braves fan even when they had pro basketball, just the tail end of my, my youth. And uh, when they left for San Diego, I just gave up on basketball entirely. So we've talked about the economic side of things. What tilted it towards sports that you really started to focus in at times on what was happening in the sports business world? Because for a while it was who played on what line and what was the score last night. Sports business isn't all that old a thing. Yeah, it, I, I didn't even know it existed uh, when I went to, to university. So I just kind of stumbled into it. And, and when you realize that there there is a lot of economics, not just from a business standpoint, but you know, uh, when we talk about, say, teams tanking or why haven't the Leafs won a Stanley Cup in 50 years, you know, maybe it's from a business standpoint, it's not optimal for them to win, right? It, winning's expensive. And so if you can sell out Maple Leaf Gardens, Air Canada Centre, Scotiabank, whatever they want to call it this week, um, you know, you can make more money by being a 500 team than by being a 700 team in a Stanley Cup contender. So uh, maybe there's an economics decision that's behind what you see as a fan. Okay, hang on. We were going to talk about London and some economics in the city and growing up and growing out. But I think given Game 5 tonight, we've got to hit on that. So Leaf fans, all of this long suffering, maybe economics can help to explain it away. As Moshe said off the start, economics can be used to explain anything. Let's dig into that. (laughs) 
Economist Moshe Lander in studio with us this afternoon. If there's anything you want Moshe to hit on, please let us know. Got a note from Rick says, like Moshe, I too am from Windsor. No, not Detroit or Toronto, but Montreal. Love to see them back in it. So we'll see how long that takes, Rick. I mean, Leaf fans are saying 1967. Hab fans, soon are they going to be chanting 1993 at Montreal fans or at the Montreal Canadiens in other buildings? I don't know, but it's not out of the question. Moshe, we just ended off our last segment talking about the fact that in sports business, sometimes it isn't in the best business interest to win. And you would think, no, 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 no. That's what sports is all about. It's all about winning. So help us to understand the business of not winning and how that can actually make you more successful. So winning is costly, right? You have to put a lot of money into winning. You have to pay for high price talent uh, and you have to charge an outrageous amount for tickets to pay for those salaries, right? So there's a sweet spot where every team has their own level where they might say, you know what, I don't want to win that much because I can't afford to pay those salaries or I don't think that my fan base will be able to pay the ticket prices that are necessary to pay for that. And so, you know, when you see something like the Cubs going over 100 years without winning a World Series, is this just sheer incompetence? Is this bad luck? Or is this a business decision that was taken by the Wrigley family to essentially kneecap their own team by not providing them with the talent necessary to win. The athletes want to win. They're not tanking. So, you know, when you hear about like the 76ers and trust the process, and it's not the players are going out trying to lose. It's not that the coach is trying to lose. Uh, But the moment that management realizes, wait, we might actually be successful here. This could mean more cost. You dump talent. You trade them for future draft picks and you go in front of an open mic and you tell your fans that this will help us build the future uh, by trading off the present. As long as fans buy it, uh, it's it's not surprising then that where you can hear that maybe some of the least successful teams can actually be very, very profitable by not having to spend on talent. One question that will come up is how honest are teams when they say, oh, well, we're only making this money? Would we ever know? Are they all making money hand over fist? So usually most teams aren't going to make money uh, from day-to-day operations. Where they make their money is in the appreciation of the the franchise value when they sell it, right? So, you know, Ottawa is just about to announce that maybe Ryan Reynolds is the new (laughs) uh, co-owner of the team, right? But that team's going to go for a billion dollars probably where uh, Eugene Melnick bought it for a tenth of that price. So his daughters are going to get quite the nice inheritance – uh, and it's not like the Senators have anything to be proud of over the last three years, especially since the the retirement of Daniel Alfredson. That's been a team in turmoil, but just franchise values go up. And uh, I hate to make it economics, but it's simple supply and demand. If you have 32 teams in the NHL, what you do is make sure that there are 34 cities that want teams. So Quebec City and Houston are salivating to get a team. So you just dangle in front of them. Uh, you build us an arena and we might consider coming, but if you won't build us an arena, then we're not moving. And you play one city off the other to who's going to give us the greatest tax concessions, who's going to give us the biggest breaks, who's going to give us everything that we're looking for and more. Uh, and, and that pushes up the, the value of your team then. Moshe Lander joining us. Moshe, when it comes to what we're seeing in the rise of either franchise values or salaries, or you name it. Everything has gone so up and up and up. Sports Illustrated, you talk about the Cubs, once had a picture of Ryan Sandberg on the cover, (laughs) and I think he was the first $6 million man. This is late 80s, early 90s. I don't remember exactly when, but that was for his entire contract. 
And if you go back to, say, the Calgary Flames, when they won the Stanley Cup in 1989, their entire roster was paid a total of $5 million. And now we've got NBA players who make in excess of $40 million per season. We have NFL players who are now making in excess of $50 million per season. Is there a ceiling somewhere? No, only only whatever the salary cap is going to be that constrains it, right? But, uh, you know, the reality is that you can't do it, I can't do it, and the number of people that can do it is extremely limited. And, you know, I think as fans, what we do is we sit there and we watch them perform and we say, I could do that. Um, or give me enough time and, uh, I, I, and you know, especially with something like Steph Curry, right? Because even though he's, whatever, 6'2", um, you know, we think that, hey, he's small compared to everybody. So that gives people like me at 5'10", a shot that, hey, I could do that too. Uh, they are so far beyond our capacity that even the, you know, the 21st person at the end of the bench who never sees more than a couple minutes of ice time are so far beyond what, you know, a rec league player could do that they can name their price, right? That's that's why Tom Cruise can earn $50 million to bring people back to the movie theater. It's because nobody can do what he does uh, and nobody can do what these athletes do. And so, uh, you know, the, the more unique their skills, the more they disconnect from uh, the average person, the more their salaries do too. Yeah, if you can only do what only you can do, you're probably going to earn a lot of money to do just that. Let's take a break for traffic and weather. Moshe Lander is our guest. He is, of course, Canada's preeminent sports economist. But we are going to talk about London and the idea that we've been grappling with in this city. Do you build up? Do you build out? What does economics say about doing either of those things? Because London is in a position right now where... If we look at the greater London area, I'm not sure that, you know, that's even a term that's used all that often. We're at about a half million people in that greater area. But we are seeing a lot of growth in this area. We're seeing a lot of growth in this city. And we're about to become, you know, one of those cities that is considered a, a big city. All of the business jargon will use Vetcom. Are you a part of Vetcom? Uh, gee, I don't know. What's Vetcom? Vancouver, Edmonton, Toronto, Calgary, Ottawa, Montreal, because those are the six biggest cities in the country. Do we find a way in there someday? We've got a lot of growing to do in order to do that. So how do we grow? Uh, Moshe, let's talk about London, Ontario. Here we are, depending on what numbers you want to look at, how many people you want to bring in from how many outlying areas. We're at around half a million people right now. Our population has been growing. And now I think we're at a point where we're trying to figure out how we want to grow. And there's a lot of growing up, but there's still certainly some growing out. All you have to do is drive up around Sunningdale Road and you'll see just how out things are getting. Uh, Lobo, we're coming. Um... When we look at cities growing from an economic standpoint, what are things we have to keep in mind? So, you know, when you grow out, I can understand why any homeowner wants to have you know, a fresh piece of land and space for a fence and a yard and a swimming pool in London. Uh, you know, th- those types of things are attractive. Uh, but remember that when you build out, you have to connect the, the sewers, you have to connect the roads, you have to have 
fire and uh, police and other first responders available and you have to have electricity and power and sewers and uh, bus transportation. Uh, and when you start factoring in all of those connections, it's impossible to avoid that your property taxes are going to rise probably disproportionately and not just in the neighborhood that's being constructed. It's going to be everybody has to bear that cost. When you build up uh, you don't have to necessarily increase those costs as substantially. And so uh, a lot of cities get suckered into building out um, and not building up. I, I, you know, I, I remember growing up the, the um, belief that you couldn't build up in London because if you built up in the downtown core, everything would sink into the swamp. Uh, because of the the soft soil here, or I, I don't know whether that's true. I'm not an engineer, but um, I'm looking outside right now. Right. We we still have a lot of tall buildings out there. They seem to be doing okay. I hope they keep doing okay. And that's exactly it. They need to build a lot more of them, and that's a way to build a lot more people into a lot less space and without incurring a lot more cost. Yeah, and there's there's one of the big deals though. You mentioned it. All of the cost. You start adding up the dollars and the number of people. It sounds like we would need to add more people. The more out you get. You've got to put a new fire hall. We always look at it playing Sim City. Sim City's pretty accurate. Exactly. It's a great analogy then, right? And you realize that very quickly it's difficult to kind of maintain a, a level tax base uh, when you're doing that. Uh, with building up, you know, it's not just that you need to build high rises too, but if you can put everybody in a small concentration, uh, it can address environmental issues as well, right? Uh, we don't need as many cars on the road. And so, you know, where you're stopping for for traffic updates and, uh, you know, there's only so many bridges that you can build to, to cross the Thames um, and only so many ways that you can avoid the, the downtown trains coming through, right? Um, at some point, if you build up, you can turn a lot of that area into pedestrian areas or you could build, say, an LRT line that just links up kind of one end of the uh, high density to the other end. And all of a sudden, you don't need as much infrastructure spending. And that money can go elsewhere. It can go into tax cuts or uh, it can be used to build uh, amenities like to help advance London's UNESCO status uh, as a music city uh, and, and make it something that, that can actually be recognized as being something worth achieving. Moshe Lander joining us. And we do have a lot of projects, a lot of developments that are taking it up. I guess we're just at the point in London right now where you look at some of the discussion that goes about the building up around certain things, Victoria Park being one of them, thinking, oh, we can't do that because then we've got this big building that we can see. But I don't know. There's a lot of big cities you go to. You can walk through some really nice parks and you can look around and you're going to see some big buildings. You'll see big buildings from Victoria Park right now. Yeah. And Victoria Park was the park. 100 years ago, 150 years ago, right? But when you're talking about a city that's half a million or greater London that's half a million, that doesn't have to be the park. It can be a park. And, you know, if you take a look at Edmonton and Calgary, uh, two cities that I'm very familiar with, they have rivers running right through the middle of their cities. And they've built up a tremendous set of bike paths and greenery and area that people can enjoy. And everybody races out as soon as the weather gets nice. And, uh, you know, the, the downtowns are completely filled with high rises and uh, you can do the same thing in London, right? You, you don't have to just consider Victoria Park as the be-all and end-all. Even just Harris Park then can be out of the shade uh, and something that people can enjoy, uh, connected with bike paths, connected the way they've tried to do here. And all of a sudden then, you don't have that constraint holding you back. We worry about downtown and the idea that you know people will have moved their office spaces away or office spaces are operating differently now. When you do look at some of the cities you're involved in, 
Are you seeing anything there that signals any kind of change from the perspective of how business is being done? It'll take a while. But, you know, one of the things that you could do is you can retrofit, right? So when you build these high rises that you expect are going to be filled with businesses, uh, it's not necessarily cheap, but it can be done where you can retrofit them into residential. And, and Calgary is going through that right now. The city goes boom to bust with that oil price and they built a huge amount of office space. COVID hit and all of a sudden nobody's coming back to those offices. Well, guess what? They're now paying to turn those into residential. It solves a bit of the housing problem and it can alleviate some of the uh, extreme housing prices that are showing up in London right now. Uh, and it's encouraging people to stay downtown then. So businesses that are connected to the downtown, right, restaurants and shops and things like that, realize that they can still have then people that are going to be able to use them uh, by providing that opportunity that, all right, it's maybe not where you work, but now it's where you live. Well, this has been such a great conversation from so many different angles. Thank you for talking sports and inflation and recession and now city planning we've even jumped into. And look. What's been the heart of, at all of it? Economics. You're right. Economics factors into everything. It is. And that's what I say to my students is that if you don't like economics, then you don't like your life. And so it's <laughs> as simple as that. It's everything in your life is economics at the end of the day. It's just you have to be able to see it. Moshe, can we do this again? This has been fun. Anytime. Thank you for being here. Enjoy the rest of the day. Enjoy the sunshine in London. Thanks for the invite. Moshe Lander with us.